Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. song the other day and I thought you know what I should start using this for the opening Respect Yourself. It's by the Staple Singer. I might be dating myself with this song, but I don't give a shit. to tell you i'm fired up today and uh you can hear why i'm fired up i'm a yankee fan i have four sports teams okay just so everybody knows it i have four sports teams the yankees the 49ers the university of notre dame fighting irish my college football team and the los angeles kings are my hockey team so last night i'm watching the yankees play toronto uh, one and two in the American League East. The Yankees are down three nothing. They they tie the game up. I don't know the fifth, sixth inning, sixth inning maybe, maybe the seventh. Giancarlo Stanton hits an opposite field three run home run. Game's tied three three. They give up the lead in the eighth. Chad Green comes up. <sighs> My God, gives up a double. Right runner gives up a triple. Runner at first scores. 
Yank and then sacrifice fly, next guy scores. Down five three. Come up in the ninth inning, right? Um, I think first guy made an out. Second guy up walks. Catcher by the name of Trevino hitting ninth. Hitting ninth. You don't do that. And the guy who's pitching is a guy named I think Romero. He's the got he's got the most saves of anybody in the American League. Yeah. So I'm not expecting positive things, but hope springs eternal, right? Sitting there in my living room watching the game. And um, then DJ LeMahieu, LeMahieu comes up next. He's a baller. He walks. Runners at first and second in Yankee Stadium when this happens. Okay. Yeah. Get ready. And the one-two. Drill deep to left field. Okay. Now, let me play what it sounds like in the McNamara house, okay? So I'm sitting there watching it, right, thinking, okay, this is the guy that will do it, Aaron Judge. He hits home runs, but he's never hit a walk-off home run. So I'm sitting there watching. Okay, so this is what it sounds like in the McNamara house. And the one-two. Okay, now, that's what it sounded like in my house, right? So, let me tell you what I love. You're going to hear the crack of the bat, okay? And behind the crack of the bat, you're going to hear um, the crowd in Yankee Stadium as it reacts to it. I love this sound. First of all, the crack off the bat, are you kidding me? Right? It's the best. All right, here you go. Listen to the crowd in the background. And the one-two. Drill deep to left field. There it goes. See ya. Up for grabs. There's his walk-off home run. And the Yankees have come back to win it. Six to five. Oh, man, oh, man. What a blast by Judge. It's the bat. We saw another one, and then finally home one. And Michael lost the vocal cord. Into the second deck. And he knew it when he hit it. The crowd knew it when he hit it. The Blue Jays knew it when he hit it. And he walks it off into the night as the Yankees beat the Blue Jays by a score of 6-5 to five in dramatic fashion. Here in the Bronx. The, um, yeah, and Mike McNamara knew it. As soon as it hit the bat, it was out. Um, so, yeah, so that happens to me. Now, my hockey team's playing in Edmonton. Okay, American teams playing games in Canada. Right? Canadian people hate us. They'll deny it, but it's a joke. Okay? So... The Kings are up, and Edmonton's a better team. 
But the Kings playing good in the playoffs, right? They've got a good goaltender, Jonathan Quick. So the Kings go up 4-2, and uh, they're on the power play, and Edmonton scores a short-handed goal. Oh, fuck. Now, so the Kings let him back in it in the third period, and then Edmonton ties it up. So come out to start the third period, and I have this kind of, see, I believe in sports karma, right? Like, I can affect the outcome of a game. I, and again, I know it's stupid, but I believe that. So one of the things that um, I've, I've found that is successful relative to sports karma is if I'm supposed to do something in my house, right, I can't put it off. Like if, if like last night I was I washed my all the bedding right the mattress pad the sheets all that shit so um, and I like I'm gonna get ready to go to bed so I need to I need to make the bed right so the intermission is ending I go back to make the bed because I know if I put this off something bad will happen to the kings okay and. So as I'm back in the bedroom making the bed, I hear them start the third period, and this is what you hear. Denied by Smith. Kane missed the puck. Kempe taking off. Powering to the net. He scores! Adrian Kempe ending this overtime real quick with his second of the game. It's the game winner, and the Los Angeles Kings lead the series 3-2. to two. Well, much like they've started all the games in this series, they came out absolutely flying in this overtime. And give them a lot of credit. Jay Woodcroft loads up the top line. They get hemmed in. Trevor Moore almost ends this overtime in the first 10 seconds. As he walks in, and he's got a great shot. He just misses the net. But then the second shift out there, Evander Kane blows a wheel, and Kelly Rudy talked about it. Guy's falling down. He just can't control a puck along the wall, and Adrian Kempe just says enough's enough. Okay, let me tell you about Adrian Kempe. Most of us have legs, right? Adrian Kempe has, like, turbo jets attached to his hips. He is quick, right? He hops out on the ice. He's a second shift. Edmonton, their guys stay out too late, and they get caught tired. Enough does it himself, walks in and tucks it past Mike Smith on a great individual effort and the Los Angeles Kings take the 3-2 lead home for game number six I mean they hit Edmonton right from the get-go watch this this puck bounces right here Kane goes to stop and try and come back falls down and Adrian Kempe just weathers a hit walks it to the forehand great move backhand he scores a goal he puts his finger to his ear like what 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 Anyway, so my teams were two for two last night in big ways. So, yeah, I'm fired up. And best of all, today's like uh, the series against Toronto is a two-game series. So today's a travel day for both teams. So that means they play in the afternoon on the East Coast. Um, yeah, my morning's like already carved up for me. Yankees on in one hour and 20 minutes. So I'm fired up. So, yeah, made me happy. Made me happy last night. My team walked it off twice. Um, you're going to hear Grant Newsham today. Um, and I want to tell you about a little little piece of video. <clears throat> a little piece of video that you should listen to that I will post in, in the post when I put it up. Um, it is 
an interview done by a guy named Ward Carroll, and um, he does it with Representative Elaine Luria. And um, they're talking about the, the United States Navy's bad strategy relative to China. And Elaine Luria, in my opinion, asked the most, from what I've seen, I don't know a elected leader that asks harder questions about maritime strategy than Elaine Luria. If they're out there, I haven't seen anything that they've written or that they've done. And so I would tell you, if you're interested in it, you should watch this. You know, she talks about the Davidson window, which is, and Gretchen and I will talk about it, but she talks about it in that uh, Admiral Davidson said that China has a window. Um, I think it's it still has five years on it um, where it is, the conditions are optimum. The United States has not retooled itself in its pivot to the Pacific. They're an ascending naval power, therein lies the window, right? And then what Representative Luria points out is, okay, so when you go through these periods, you have to be as strong as you can be, and you have to do things that impact your ability to be strong where you believe you need to be strong. But essentially, you have to dance with who's at the dance. In the midst of this, the Navy is decommissioning ships at the cyclic rate as fast as they can. And she just said, how does that make sense to anybody? She says, and, and so this whole divest to invest, we've heard this so many times before, and we never get the invest part. And so, so I, again, uh, I would tell you to listen to it. Uh, you'll enjoy it. She's a smart person. The, the guy, Ward Carroll, he's a Naval Academy grad, former United States. I think he, I'm not sure if he's, I think he's a Naval aviator. Is what I think he is. But anyway, um, he asks, you know, he asks smart questions and they have a very, very interesting discussion. So um, you'll get that link. So good morning to you on this beautiful, beautiful sports morning for me and my teams. Yes. Aaron Judge crushed that thing too. Exactly. Exactly. Three run home run. Yankees win 6 5. The um, yeah, yeah. So if you're looking for the American League East standings, Yankees four games ahead of Tampa, five games ahead of Toronto. Um, no hitter last night. Then after the Kings get done, I got this alert saying, "Hey, uh, so and so is working on no hitter." A rookie playing for the Los Angeles Angels throwing a no-hitter um, about, I don't know, 15 minutes from my house. So I flip that on, and he pulls it off. He pulls it off. Uh, and it's funny because they interview him afterwards, and he doesn't have shit to say either. Uh, what do you say to all these fans? They're so excited. Uh, thanks for coming out. <laughs> <laughs> but it's awesome. And you know what I love about um there's this moment of joy in sports, right? That um Aaron Judge hits this ball and <clears throat> the ball's still in the air and his teammates are jumping over the the dugout fence. 
and you see them losing their shit, right? Um, hockey in overtime is is the worst overtime ever because it ends all of a sudden the puck's in the net and you're like, what just happened? What happened? We were just playing a second ago. And uh but uh NHL hockey in the playoffs is the best, man. It is a straight up man's event. And uh so and then to see uh this kid's teammates so proud of you know, so fired up and so excited last night. It was a so it was a good night, sports night all around. Uh, they don't come along very often. So I, I thought I would share it with you. And then we're going to talk to Grant Newsham, uh, essentially about four things. Uh, we're going to talk about, um, I think his name's Bong Bong Marcos. That's his nickname. Got elected as the president of the Philippines. What does that mean for the United States? We're going to talk about Representative Luria's comments, an article that I'll also post in this thing called Biden's Trade Team. Rest in peace, globalization. So this whole notion of globalization and what got you all those cheap goods at Target and Walmart? Yeah. And what put a whole lot of domestic manufacturing out of business now has to be reconsidered because guess what we learned? It's kind of interesting because Force Design 2030 just popped into my head. It wasn't a revolution in globalization because you still have the same actors doing the same kind of shit. Vladimir Putin starring as Adolf Hitler. Oh, so maybe the world hasn't changed. Where's Angela Merkel? Where's Barack Obama? And and the rest of the clowns that said that. I just said something about Force Design 2030 and said, the nature of warfare has changed. Really? Would you bet your life on it? Would you bet your kid's life on it? Maybe this is just another iteration in the spiral of man, technology, and war. Ooh, that's a fairly deep question, right? So, yeah, we'll talk about that relative to trade. And and, and, it, and it, the, the article paints a picture of a Biden administration that can't agree on a course of action in the Pacific. Don't want to do Donald Trump's thing. Don't want to do Barack Obama's. Is there a middle ground? And they can't figure it the fuck out. So we'll ask Grant about that. And then Grant wrote a piece entitled Taiwan. Shinzo Abe gets it partly right. So he's talking about Japan and Japan's approach to Taiwan. So you will hear all of that coming up. But first, the United States Marine Corps Band makes it official. Good morning.
And uh, this is dedicated to my sports teams, man. I've never dedicated anything to my sports teams. All right, since I've been doing this show, but come on, last night. <laughs> last night was awesome, right? Walk it off twice? Are you kidding me? And the one-two. Drill deep to left field. There it goes. <laughs> See ya. Up for grabs. There's his walk-off home run. And the Yankees have come back to win it. Six to five. Pandemonium in the Bronx. And there is nothing like the sound of silent Canadians. Denied by Smith. <laughs> Kane missed the puck. Kempe, Kempe taking off. Kempe, 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 Kempe. Adrian Kempe Woo! ending this overtime real quick with his second. Oh, it got really quiet in Edmonton. Hate when that happens. betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly i've been asked a couple times who is that that is charles krauthammer passed away what a couple years ago uh conservative writer uh, but that's him what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> If this was vodka, it'd be a lot better speech. <clears throat> but I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So young folks, you ignore what I just said. That's so funny. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We gotta do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult, challenging conditions and odds and win. We gotta win. Alright, time to uh Check the weather. It is sunny and 67 already in Quantico. 
What the hell is going on on my weather? At Cherry Point, it is partly sunny in 62, in 29 Palms, that would be in California. It is sunny in 53, cold here in California, at Camp Pendleton. It is sunny in 56. In Manila, <clears throat> where they just had an election, it is fair and 85. At the home of Auburn Radio, that would be the Costa Mesa, Newport Beach area of Southern California, it is partly sunny and 59 degrees. Looking for a hive only today? The hell was that? What? That's in the Philippines. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> uh, yeah, Costa Mesa is not the Philippines, in case you don't know. <clears throat> today, looking for a hive 68. Tomorrow, 76. Friday. 77, Saturday 81, Sunday 75. How about that? Exactly. Kaboom. No wonder they're throwing no hitters out here. So that is a look at your weather. Real quick to news headlines. Uh, top stories in Stars and Stripes. The USS Harry Truman makes a rare visit to Naples as tensions continue in Europe. So that is in the U news as the United States moves combat power to reinforce its NATO allies. Next headline, U.S. intelligence officials warn of prolonged war in Ukraine as Russia expands territorial goals. Uh, next headline, first U.S. Navy cruiser to pass through the Taiwan Straits in two years troubles China. And another interesting story, Ukraine has cut Russia's gas to one hub. And so that is Europe supply. So anytime that Ukraine says, hey, we're done, and that this involves money and treasuries and shit like that, somebody's got to guarantee that money. And <clears throat> so they've cut it down to one hub. And then here's a story. And again, what's interesting is um, President-elect Marcos in the Philippines, he didn't do debates. He didn't do a lot of press stuff. He just He just ran. What does that sound like? Sounds like Joe Biden. Copied a page out of his book. Anyway, one in a landslide, I guess. Um, <clears throat> headline. Now, much has been said. Grant believes, you know, he will steer a neutral course. He will cultivate, and you'll hear Grant talk about this, uh, he'll cultivate China because of the business ties and the money to be made there. But here's the headline. Election of ex-dictator's son won't change Philippine military's pro-U.S. posture, experts say. Grant's not so, so sure about that. 
Next headline, shrinking army worries lawmakers as military recruitment and retention woes continue. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, interesting little discussion we had with, I had with Tim and Jeff on Monday, both former recruiters, um, them saying that, uh, we're, you know, the, the subject of the, the draft always comes up in this conversation. What do you guys think? And I think Jeff has it right. And Will might have said this before, too. Um, we will drop the standards before we implement a draft, right? And that's because politicians won't be willing to do that because there, there will be a price to pay, trust me. Um, US, uh, from the Wall Street Journal, U.S. inflation edged down in April to 8.3 annual rate. Why? So I'm curious. Why? Because fuel doesn't seem to have come down very much. You know, and the, the thing about fuel that's the tough pill to swallow is it's a self-inflicted wound. We could change that, but not with the current administration. Let's see, top headline, New York Times, inflation pressures remain strong, consumer prices rise sharply. Interesting. The New York Times has a more Republican headline than the Wall Street Journal. Uh, top headline in the Washington Post this morning is, inflation edged down in April compared to previous months, but remains high, data shows. Top story in USNI News. Marines are looking for an interim solution to the light amphibious warship, which has not made the Navy's cut relative to ship purchases. Yeah. So, Marine Corps. Uh, 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 <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, we got no ships. And they don't want to build them. And you're gonna you're gonna hear Representative Luria talk about this. You know, it's interesting. The Pentagon proposes budgets, and then Congress looks at them and says, "What are you doing?" Right. So this is a story from yesterday. House Bill backs Marines' 31 amphibious ship requirement over the Navy's 25 ship requirement. So this is like stunning stuff, right? Stunning stuff. Two members in Congress have heard the Marines call for more amphibious ships and issued a House bill that would cement their level at 31, according to language reviewed by USNI News. Put forth by House Armed Service Sea Power and Projection Force Subcommittee Chair Representative Joe Courtney, Democrat, Connecticut, and Ranking mem Member Republican Rob Whitmer, Whitman, Republican Virginia, the bill pushes back against the Navy's budget request that would end the San Antonio-class amphibious warship line and bring the total number of amphibs down to 25. Quote, the amphibious surface ship force structure of the Navy must be maintained at 31, composed of 10 amphibious assault ships, general purpose and multipurpose, and 21 amphibious transport dock types in order to meet global requirements, reads the bill. 
The bill follows a letter Marine Corps Commandant General David Berger sent in response to an inquiry about amphibious ship requirements from Whitman and Mike Gallagher, former Marine, who's also a representative from Wisconsin. Berger outlined the services requirement for large amphibious ships known as L-class ships and and the proposed light amphibious warship. So, and the Navy does simply does not. I mean, you, you saw an article quoting Lieutenant General Heckel, or I mean, he might be a four-star now, General Heckel, um, talking about we couldn't get there. And we can't get there. The Marine Corps can't get there because the Navy doesn't have enough and will not maintain what they have in terms of amphibious warfare inventory. So, um, interesting. Um All right, that's in USNI News. Uh, Top story in Marine Corps Times is... Marines seek to balance career progression and unit cohesion. Next, Next headline. Here's how Marine air power will shift with the Marine Corps Aviation's 2022 plan. I have to tell you this. When you read the aviation stuff, um, that's that we're going to, the Marine Corps is going to lose over 200 aviation platforms. That's stunning, honestly. Um, Here's a troubling headline Soldier dies after bear attack in Alaska training area. You mean to tell me that if you're going to go out in a place that has bears, that nobody has a live round to shoot a bear with? Sounds kind of stupid. Oh, that's right. They're soldiers or Marines. We can't trust them with live ammunition in the training area. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, Top five stories in early bird very quickly. And then you'll hear Grant. Afghan-based terror group still a year away from stability to strike the U.S. intel leaders say. After all that bullshit, right? You saw the news from last week. Yeah. All you women in Afghanistan, time to burka up. Not there, all that bullshit. Oh, no, the Taliban, they've committed to this, they've committed to that. What a fucking joke, man. Next next headline, shooting further with more punch. The Army finally found an M4 and saw replacement. So congratulations to the American Army. Uh, next, well, let me, uh, no, I want to drill into that story. I, I want to see what caliber the round is. The Next Generation Squad Weapon Program gives U.S. troops a far, far more lethal 6.8 millimeter round following the 40 years the Pentagon has spent searching for an, alter, an alternative to the 5.56 round that troops have been taking to war for the past 65 years. So, there you have it. 68 uh, next, the littoral combat ship's latest problem, class-wide structural defects leading to hull cracks. Nice. The Navy, man. Seriously, ought to be in receivership. For whatever reason, the people that, that rise to the highest levels of the Navy cannot govern that organization. And Representative Luria makes some very interesting comments at the end of that little video. Grant and I talk about it a little bit. But she's kind of, uh, she's talking about this, this concept of, I think they call it integrated power. 
and it's uh, it's a discussion of using all forms of uh, American power, economics, diplomacy, right, um, public affairs, right, all of that stuff, um, and military power. And um, it's called DIME, D-I-M-E. So anyway, um, and they, she says, I think they use that as really the premise to spend less on defense. But she says, you know, we have to get back to the Reagan era levels of the spending between 5 and 6% of the GDP. And that's the only way the Navy shipbuilding program is going to get where it needs to be. And that's what we say is the single most important threat, China. Right. But we have no plan to. And then at some point she says, we have a plan to get that. We, we have a stated goal by Congress of getting of 355 ship Navy. But there is no naval. There, there's no United States Navy plan to do it. If you ask them, they're like, yeah, we have no plan to do that. So, I mean, some of the stuff you hear is amazing. And then she's really the first person I've heard. You know, she talks about um, and you heard Grant and I talk about it. She went back and watched the John Lehman hearings when the Navy under Ronald Reagan was going to go to 600 ships. That they had a strategy first. From the strategy came um, procurement decisions, right? And it, it all flowed. She said, that's not the way we do it anymore. So it, she's very smart, very interesting discussion. Next headline, Pentagon pitches new law changes to enable U.S.-EU defense cooperation. Interesting. And then the story about marine air power shifting. But again, the loss of, of 200 platforms. I mean, well, um, Ukrainian war headlines. Let me see if anything breaks. Squelch. Russia, Ukraine, live news, attacks on Kharkiv intensifying. Uh, next headline from Al Jazeera, Russia down satellite internet in Ukraine, according to Western officials. Also, according to the Pentagon, Russia has fired between, between 10 and 12 hypersonic missiles into Ukraine. And then from the New York Times, Russia has seized much of Ukraine's east despite the setback. All right. So with that said, um, you are now going to hear Grant Newsham. It's been a couple weeks because uh, I was doing some traveling, but joining me uh, this morning is Grant Newsham. And uh, Grant, first of all, uh, good morning. How are you? How's the weather in, uh, in Taipei? Oh, smoking hot. Is it? But it's, uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's always hot. You know, that's the default temperature but uh give us give us an american equivalent of taipei oh is there new orleans say new orleans in about uh maybe like july that's not pleasant does that work yeah but, no but, although, not if you've no, but, not if you've ever been there yeah but you know how new orleans in the winter is pretty nice it's not bad but um but once you get to that the hotter months, um, it gets slimy. And, and you really feel the pollution, sort of the air pollution. 
and uh, so you, you get slimed up pretty quick if you have to walk around. What is the, uh, uh, do you wear a lot of cotton? Do you wear, do you have like, I mean, you're from, you're from the Baltimore area. Do you have your yeah. sea sucker suit and your straw hat? What do you wear? <laughs> do you have the summer, the, the DC summer attire um, um, going? What do you, what is What is the, what does one wear when it's that hot and muggy? Well, you usually wear like a, um, like a, what do they call it? A boater hat. I'm not, I like don't know a, what that a straw, is. you know, the straw hat with a, a boater. If you were like a, a gentleman in 1910, you wouldn't have gone outside without one. And uh, then with you, no, I don't really. Um, no, I sort of dress like a Lance Corporal on Liberty. That's you know, <laughs> circa you know, 1985. Uh, that's sort of my uh, uniform, is, uh, <laughs> comfortable stuff. So you're pretty much left alone. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. but you know, I'd like to be comfortable. Are, the only question I have is: Are you wearing the big red jacket that says "Marines" vertically down the left-hand side? Are you doing? Oh yeah, it's got the white stripe. Or the, yeah, no, I I don't really. But if I had one, I would. But I don't. <laughs> you don't. Well, maybe we can get somebody to send you one, Grant. I mean, if 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 you're really looking for one, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. But All no, right. yeah, you, know, you want to be comfortable, you know, like so, you know, shorts and uh, <laughs> if you're going somewhere important, like a shirt with a collar. Otherwise, it's too much. Yeah, don't want to overdo it. All right, big news in the Pacific: uh, election in the Philippines. Um, Mr. Marcos, son of Ferdinand Marcos, and son of Imelda Marcos, uh, is the new president of the Philippines. It seems like nobody really knows. I've seen articles written that says he will cozy up to China. I've seen articles saying that he has refused to debate. He doesn't do too many press conferences. He's like taking the Joe Biden page and uh, and all the way to a landslide victory in the Philippines. Um, Do you have any sense of what this means for American uh, Philippine relationships? Well, that's going to require uh, some sort of careful handling. Uh, for however long his term is, uh, he's, you know, is, from what I hear, is pro-China, you know, secretly, not secretly, but he doesn't, you know, he's kind of kept it in check uh, during the election campaign. But th- there's no question that he's in bed with Chinese, Chinese interests, uh, makes a lot of money from them. Uh, and that's not surprising. Everybody knew it and knows it. So it's now we're getting, though, a double dose because... Um, uh, Duterte's daughter was elected vice president, apparently. And we know about him. So you've got, you know, in the two top positions, you've got some people who uh, don't just lean to the Chinese, but they've definitely you know, got a working relationship with them. Uh, and the uh, Duterte, um, Marcos's victory was, oh, it was a really big one. You know, he won by millions of votes. Uh, and at the same time, though, you do have in the Philippines, you, as we've talked about, you've got the military and you've got you know, a good chunk of the public that doesn't like the Chinese uh, and does uh, resist and resent the Chinese efforts to establish influence in the country. So uh, Marcos can't just sort of open up the floodgates uh, and let the Chinese in and kick the Americans out. So it's going to be this uh, sort of jockeying between 
the two factions uh, for the foreseeable future. And we'll be able to, you know, I think we will still be able to do the things you know, that we've been doing in the Philippines, but there'll be a limit to how, uh, how much more we can do. So the, the training, yes, but the uh, you know, setting up, say, forward operating bases in the Philippines, I don't see that happening uh, well you know, for a while. Uh, but that's just my take. And it is, you know, we've talked about this and, you know, the election outcome, it's it's the Philippines. You now, we you, know, you kind of wonder, like, why does California keep electing some of the people they do? Uh, it's just what they are. You know, you've got a, you know, the nature of the electorate in the Philippines. They, a guy like Marcos actually has some broad appeal. And you know, we tend to look at it as from the perspective of you know, you know the, the military defense things and Marines and uh, that relationship with China, et cetera. But for you know an awful lot of Filipinos, if somebody says I'm gonna, you know, somehow you're gonna get a better job or a job and you're gonna get paid more and the cost of electricity is going to go down, food's gonna be cheaper, you know, life's gonna be better. Well, that's all you want to vote on. You're not thinking about sort of the perspective that we take. And that, you know, given the nature of the Philippine economy, the society, that it's really not surprising a guy like Marcos uh, is able to get elected. What, um, I mean, it would seem to me, were I a Philippine, were I a politician in the Philippines, I mean, I would attempt to extract as much investment as I could get out of China. Um, I don't know that I want the security relationship that I used to have with the Americans because it irritates that. Oh, by the way, I can make an awful lot of money out of, out of that Chinese investment into my country, but I can also court the Americans as well. Um, that would seem to me to be a prudent course um, of action. Now, I, let me ask you this. You, you've talked about Mr. Duterte long being you know, on the dole of the Chinese. But the bottom line was the Chinese did not create the investments in the Philippines that they said they would. And that became a bone of contention. Much promised, little delivered. Uh, can you talk about that? Well, there's always the, the hope and the prospect of uh, another round of uh, anticipated and promised investments. And if you just get a few of them, you get your cut of the deal. And that's, you know, you bank that away. And, you know, that's kind of about as far as the thinking goes uh, at that level. Uh, so you're trying to play, sort of manage the the inevitable resentments of the Chinese that sort of spread throughout the, the population. Um, but at the same time, you're trying to do as well as you can for yourself. And if you can get any sort of um, sort of Chinese promise to materialize, well, you can kind of consider yourself making progress. Uh, but the, the absolute sort of corruption and venality of the Philippine elite class uh, is it's hard to imagine, you know, you know, once again, you know, I suppose speaking of, you know, Louisiana earlier, if you think of Louisiana politics uh, or New Orleans politics, that it's just the thoroughgoing corruption. And that's always been the, 
always been the case. It's family rule. You know, the, the Marcos family is, you know, represents one family dynasty, and there's you know a number of them uh, that politicians, you know, at a certain level are aligned with, and they each have their own interests at stake, or at um, at interest at interest. That's what they you know principally are interested in. And it, sort of if something happens for the country, that's almost a, a, an unexpected benefit. Um, but also being able to claim that look busy, look like you're doing something, uh, that's part of it as well. But it really is personal enrichment, which so often seems to be the, the main uh, objective in, uh, at a certain level of Philippine politics. Uh, and, you know, the, the geopolitical stuff, the nation-to-nation strategy uh, sort of thing that we think about, that that's, it's, it's there, but it's um, maybe a secondary issue uh, as well. They, you know, we, you know, we tend to uh, uh, sort of look at the, the Philippines almost in an American-y kind of way. Right. And, you know, I, I can remember one of the things that I remember years ago, it would have been like 1989, so a while ago, um, when I did Philippine stuff, um, this was at, this was, uh, Marcos had been overthrown just a few years earlier. And the thing that led to him being overthrown was the murder of a politician named uh, Benigno Aquino. Right. And he had, you know, he was sort of a, an opposition guy, but well, he was an opposition guy, an opponent of Marcos. Uh, he went back to the Philippines and he was gunned down on the, the tarmac uh, by, a, I think, a Philippine, either police or military officer, just murdered. And that caused such a fuss in, in the Philippines, but also with the Americans, that it ultimately this is what I think tipped um, Marcos out of power. And the the uh, the image was in the American press was that Aquino was a, a real man of the people and right. really wanted to change things, make things better for the the working men. Uh, but anyway, when I was doing the Philippine stuff, you know, I remember we had a guy come in to talk to us. He was an older fellow and he had married into one of the elite families in the Philippines, and he was an American actually. And he, um, I remember him saying that. Uh, you know, he says, well, what, what was the difference between Marcos and Aquino? And I think I said something, well, Aquino had the interests of the common man at heart, blah, blah, blah. And uh, this guy says, no, Marcos was smart. And the point was that there was really no difference between the two, but Marcos was a, a more sort of devious and was, was better at uh, that sort of, I don't know what you call under the table stuff that, uh, that's required. And I've always remembered that. The point being, as I said, that there really wasn't much difference uh, between the two. And when so when thinking about something like a Philippine politics and uh, this recent election, that there is a maybe there there's some difference between the two main candidates uh, and probably more than between like a, an Aquino and a Marcos, um, but not as much as you would think. And you remember that Aquino's son, uh, I think, was the the president before Duterte, and the, the Aquino family is a, a very rich, powerful Philippine family, Filipino family, uh, from a different region than the Marcos family. Uh, but they, um, you know, so the difference is, uh, in some respects, academic. 
but you will get some who are just feel better about the Americans, uh, feel worse about the Chinese than than others, and that's sort of what you're seeing on display is uh, the families sort of just you know fighting with each other, and some of the families are um, better than others in the that from that perspective of being. Uh, more aligned with the U.S. and opposed to the, the Chinese. Can you rightly portray for us when we when we talk about um, forces on 2030, uh, advanced, what, expeditionary base operations, right? Um, when we talk about those concepts, um, one of the things you have to have, I think, is, a, is host nations that will allow you into the region or you have to i don't know are there enough unoccupied islands that that we can go there um but uh, every one of them will face the wrath of the chinese um should they cozy up too much to the americans do you think it's possible grant that we can still um uh, create some kind of an arrangement with, pick one, Vietnam, Malaysia, um, some country in the region that allows us um, acts to be there prior to, because other than that, I, I'm not really sure where we go to, to, to execute this operation. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I like to think it's possible, um, but I would like to think it was already arranged before this plan was introduced uh, and we know it wasn't, and we know that the one section at Mar 4 Pack, the G5, that could have, you know, could have really greased things in the right way, uh, was disbanded a few years ago by the then commander at Mar 4 Pack, General Berger. Uh, it was a catastrophe for the Marines and for this, uh, say, the American presence in the Pacific. Uh, they so you, we got our work cut out for us, and I don't know that we're going to be able to pull this off in the Philippines for the next few years. Uh, but there's other parts, you know. So you know, there, there's other parts of the Pacific where, if, if we make the effort, I think we have some prospects. But we don't seem to be making the effort. Who would you uh, who would you put at the top of that list? Oh boy, you know the. You know, geography is what it is, and the Philippines are a big part of it. Right, right. And when you see it, now the, the you know, I would try maybe to get the, the Malaysians and the Indonesians into it somehow. But No, but who would you, if you were handicapping? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the Vietnamese yeah. have, uh, the Vietnamese have, you know, fought mm-hmm. the Chinese how many times? Would they be... Um, the most likely target because they would certainly face the wrath of the Chinese sharing a common coast and fishing rights and things like that. Yeah, um, I don't, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so don't. if you were handy, so if this was the Preakness and you were handicapping it, okay, I like to put it in terms of Baltimore because you understand that so well. Mm-hmm. Um, who would you say would be the most likely, the most willing? person to dance with us in the region i think taiwan if you did it quietly and carefully i think you could get something very interesting there uh, so if you did it the right way uh, they would pr- they always welcome any attention that we give them uh, the philippines i think as we've discussed i think that's a problem now 
you've you know you're, you're way back from the first island chain, but Palau they've offered us uh, you know some opportunities. They have begged us to come in and set up a base, and we still won't get moving on it uh, for some reason. Does that put us inside the uh, my Pacific geography? Isn't what it should be. Does that put it? Um, does that put us inside the WES, as it's known? Oh, I think the WES is an engineering problem. <laughs> as, the, <laughs> as the Chinese, all you have to do is expand your missile range. So the WES will keep moving, like all the way to Oceanside. Uh, it's um, uh, yeah, it's as if we think that the Chinese have. You know, it's going to be thus far and no farther in terms of their missile development. Uh, it's unfortunate. You know, Palau's okay. It's good, but it's if you look at it, it's east of the Philippines. Yeah. Uh, but it is a place that welcomes us. And sometimes, if you get in, uh, you find others who are sort of more willing to help. And and then I'd mentioned Malaysia and Indonesia. Uh, that you know that, that it's that's a it's going to take some would take some work, and it's it's. The work should have started 10, 15 years ago, uh, not tomorrow. Uh, and then you've, you could maybe talk, I think you can get the Japanese interested in the, the Nansei Shoto, the Ryukyu Island chain. Uh, I think they'll go along with it, partly because they're putting their own uh, missile systems in there. But once again, these are very small islands. And, you know, there isn't a whole lot of room to move around or even stay hidden uh, up there. Um, so the, the Philippines, as you think you've mentioned before, that is, it's very important terrain. Taiwan gets all the attention, uh, but the Philippines is uh, pretty important. When you, If your objective is to keep the, sort of defend along the so-called first island chain, you know, it stretches from Japan down to Taiwan through the Philippines and then down to uh, Borneo you know, or over to the Straits of Malacca. Uh, but you, if you can't operate in the Philippines, you can, you're trying to, Figure something out around the the ends of it. Um, so the and then you got into the the rest of the Pacific, um, you know the s- Southwest Pacific. You know the the Solomons. You know that's um, maybe going to be a tough order now if we don't right. get our act together very quickly. Uh, but that would be a useful place. Um, the New Guinea you know, as well. Uh, the and those would be would be helpful also. Uh, but you can't be too many places. But you know, you you ask yourself, well, where have we greased the skids so that we can get in? And you don't quite see where that that is. Um, but to say Taiwan, if I had to say a place that you could do it pretty easily and pretty fast, uh, be Taiwan. But as I said, you'd have to go in in the right way, not you know send a meb in there, but rather um, something a little quieter. Um, that would be would be useful. All right. The second thing I want to talk to you about is I sent you a video of uh, uh, Elaine Luria being interviewed by a guy named Ward Carroll. Uh, Representative Luria is from Virginia. She's a former, former, she's a United States Naval Academy graduate. Uh, We've talked about her before on the program. She's a, uh, she's on the House Armed Services Committee. I think she's on the Power Projection Subcommittee. Um, Ward Carroll, a United States Naval Academy graduate, too. And so um, I'm curious um, your thoughts. Uh, and we both watched this. And specifically about, I mean, you've been a student at the Pacific for a long time. Um, one of the things that Representative Luria points out is that Admiral Davidson and has 
it's called the Davidson window. He talked about a window that China has relative to um, invading Taiwan, Taiwan before America's pivot to the Pacific gets more formidable, right? And so that was his assessment. In this period of vulnerability, Representative Luria points out, we are taking and and we are divesting of platforms during this period, making ourselves essentially more vulnerable, the period more dangerous. And she calls into question the Navy's strategy uh, relative to shipbuilding in this period that they've assessed as this window of vulnerability. You had a chance to watch that. I'd be curious about, you know, as, as somebody who's been out there for a while, somebody, you know, who uh, who lives in Taiwan, um, your thoughts about what you saw uh, relative to her comments. Oh, I thought she, uh, she comes across very well. I knew of her, of course, but I'd never actually seen her interviewed. But uh, she's very good. I think she knows her subject. She's thoughtful and has the, the big picture about it. And I think also a lot of just sort of common sense of the, the sort that the, the average uh, person would have. You know, if, let's see, you know, she's you know, rightly points out, well, the Navy you know, thinks the Chinese are coming and they're going to go after Taiwan in the near future, in the foreseeable future. And we don't have enough ships as it is. And we're going to cut a number of very useful, still serviceable ships uh, and reduce our numbers even further. And the idea is that we may, you know, the idea is we'll uh, divest to invest and that we will um, build some more ships uh, theoretically within the next decade, whatever it is. And so it's, she's, you know, saying, well, how, I don't quite get that, you know, and nobody can really explain it either. You know, it's, um, and the guy and that, she, and the guy that's interviewing her says, says this, he said, it's not like you get to decide when, <laughs> when the war occurs, you, you dance with who's there. And in this way, the Navy has, this is the fleet we have, and this is the fleet we fight in this period of, quote-unquote, vulnerability. And so, I mean, it, it even gets more pointed and awkward. And then they put on this little exchange between she and General Milley, and he starts playing semantic games with her, yes. right? And it's it's very interesting. I'll put the link, and, and you'll be able to find the link in, in this. Um, it's about, I think, a 35-minute video interview. Uh, on YouTube and uh, very good. Yeah, very, I thought very... I would. I thought I would just watch a little bit and say I read, watched the whole thing, <laughs> but I ended up watching it all because I thought it was that good. Right. Uh, and she, um, yeah, her and General Milley's uh, man, it, yeah, yeah. As you say, he's playing with words and she's playing with uh, sort of concepts uh, that are in the real world and. The uh, she's also very good at taking on the this idea of integrated deterrence, um, and the idea it being it's the it's the buzzword that is being thrown out by uh, you know people interested in doing defense in Washington and even in the military integrated deterrence that uh, it appears to mean you reduce your forces uh, quite a lot. Uh, but since you've got all this other stuff, this soft power, uh, these partners and allies that supposedly are going to help you as well, that it doesn't matter if you really shrink your force down 
um, way beyond where it needs to go. And she points out that this is a, a you know, is kind of um, like divest to invest, that integrated deterrence is almost like a bumper sticker sort of slogan. And she really takes that on uh, very well. Uh, and I think she is she um, also describes a report that was done by a defense official named uh, Kath Hicks, uh, which is kind of a, it's a sort of sophistry. It's a justification for really reducing the military. Uh, and she really, she addresses these things very well. She's got a nice manner. Um, so she's not like breathing fire and resentments, obviously the way that I would be. Um, but she comes across very well and she cites um, uh, Representative Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin, uh, who's a, now a Marine Reserve Intelligence Officer, who's also been very good on these issues. Uh, but one thing I, I would point out that she mentions the so-called Davidson window, and that refers to the former PACOM commander, uh, Admiral Davidson, who said to Congress just before he was leaving that I think it was he thought the Chinese would be coming in two th by 2007 or something like that, coming against Taiwan. And the it's on it it shouldn't be the Davidson window. It should be the Fennell window. Um, and the the background there is that in the 2010s, the first part of it, there was a Navy captain named uh, Jim Fennell who was the head of intelligence at PACOM, and he was had studied the Chinese for years, and he pointed out that uh, he thought from 2020 to 2030 would be the decade of concern, when he thought it was most likely China would go after Taiwan and that they were looking to provoke a, to have a short, sharp war against the Japanese. Now, in that period, you could not say China was an enemy. You couldn't even say it was a potential adversary. And this what Captain Fennell was saying, it, it, people don't remember now just how controversial it was in many quarters. And I'm told the Obama White House didn't like him at, at all. Um, but actually, but he was cashiered in about 2014, 2015, uh, was really forced to retire. Uh, and he's the one who started this decade of concern. He's the one who raised it and paid for it with his, uh, with his job. Uh, and was really was just persecuted, uh, as it seemed to me. And uh, so it should be the, the Jim Fennell window, not the Davidson uh, window. Um, and so he was the, the one who got it right. But Admiral Davidson, I think he's uh, was right on uh, on the mark as well. But it was that decade of concern. You know, and I know a lot about a little bit about the subject of you know, China, what they're going to do. And I heard Captain Fennell speak at a, maybe in 2017 or so after he was uh, had been removed. Uh, and I heard him speak and give his pitch. And holy cow, I mean, it made your skin crawl. Uh, you know, the, the, and he, he lays it out. And I think he gets it about right that the, the Chinese are looking, they're out for blood and they will be coming. You know, the other thing that she, she kind of lays um, bare is the idea of this, the this idea of integrated power, is a semantic game. You know all the elements of national power, right? Which is an excuse for under you know to reprioritizing defense, specifically um, uh, uh, channeling money into the 
um, woke agenda of the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Representative Luria, you know, calls that out pretty blatantly and says, no, it's it's bad policy. And so so very interesting. Uh, No. And and so, yeah, I tell everybody listening, um, you know, I think Grant would concur. The um, um, take a look at it. She's good. And, uh, and and I think the fundamental question she asks, which is, if this is what you've defined as our window of vulnerability, then what are we doing? Because what we're doing is we're taking our, um, essentially, our launch uh, platforms. And, and she does this accounting with launch platforms. You know, on, on this DDG, you have five. On this, you have six. On this, you have two. Right. And she begins doing the math and say, this is where they're taking us. And in this element, when we don't need less, we need more. And this is what the Navy budget needs to be. And then she talks about and Grant alluded to it. But she talks about going back and and watching hearings when John Lehman um, was the secretary of Navy and the Reagan administration. What what was that grant? 600 ship Navy. Something like that. Yeah, it's a big one. Yeah. And and she's talking about, you know, the House and Senate agreed that we need to have a, a a 355 ship navy and um and then she says there is no plan though to get there the navy has no plan to get there and you're hearing these things and you're just like what you know and it's uh, some of it's hard to some of it's very very hard to believe and so um well worth anybody's time um uh in in terms of uh uh watching this um I sent you an article. It says Biden's trade team rest in peace globalization. Now I've been somebody sent it sent it to me and said you, this may have some elements of an answer to your thoughts on uh, the Pacific. Um, did you see anything in there that that illuminates? So this idea of globalization has been so huge uh, with Angela Merkel, Barack Obama, right? Um, and all of a sudden, it seems to be dying um, right in front of us. And um, have you seen anything in there that explains? Are there any footnotes in that article, Grant, that explain why we haven't seen anything in the Pacific other than the Biden administration can't agree on what a course of action for the Pacific? Uh, I looked for that specific footnote. <laughs> I didn't see it. Right. One where people admit to being lazy, good for nothings. Um, I, I didn't find it, but, but and I looked at it and I read the whole thing. And it's, it's an, an interesting piece and it's worth, you know, worth a look. But it, I was just left with the impression that um, you've got a lot of people talking and you've got some people saying this ought to be done, that ought to be done to, uh, you know, solve our economic problems, to sort of get ourselves off of this dependency with China, to restore uh, American manufacturing um, to allow American exports to take place, even to China, but to do it in a, a smart way. But there's a lot of these ideas being thrown around, a lot of talk. But I don't see anything that you know is really concrete um, in you know in, that's going to be implemented and really make a difference. And it to me, it just it you know it reminds me that, or brings to mind the. I would call it this almost this constipation of so many people that have ideas, they have theories, and and then you have people try, trying to push theirs, and then others trying to stop it, 
you have the effects of Wall Street, um, you know, and then you have uh, domestic politics that gets in, gets involved. Um, you know, it, it's you know, and you know, you also noted that in there, you there were both people who had held, uh, say, positions in the National Security Council under both the Republican and Democrat administrations, and they're all they're all still talking about what we should do. And these are people who were in positions where they should have actually got something done. And it all seems to track back to me that there's these pe some people, there's people who can do things uh, and get things done. And there's the vast majority of people who cannot. But it just struck me as a lot of talking uh, is, is how it you know, seemed to me. You know, there's always this mantra that gets tossed out. Oh, we're going to bring manufacturing back and get good, high-paying union jobs in America, and this and that. And yeah, I think every politician has been saying that forever. Um, I would say none of them would dream of having a job that required you to join a union because you might have to work with your hands. But that's the, the cliche, good, high-paying union jobs. Uh, okay, well, how are you going to do that? And then what's the deal with unions? You, know, you let them operate for a while and they take on the all the characteristics of an organized crime gang. Uh, you know, they, it's, so it just struck me as, as a lot of talk. Um, you know, I, would, uh, I would like to see, um, you know, the, the congressmen and the National Security Council staff and U.S. trade representative and you know, those people, I'd like them all to take a field trip to, uh, say, Erie, Pennsylvania, or Youngstown, Ohio, or East Cleveland, or Buffalo. And go live for two weeks, say in a in a motel, you know, in the good parts of those places, and require them to be out on the street from eight to ten, eight in the morning to ten in the evening, uh, just seeing what's going on, uh, and um, then maybe go to the local high school and hang out with the guidance counselor, so they can see what bright opportunities await the students there. Uh, that, you know. And give them some sense of the damage that they have done over the last, or that has been done by our MBA class uh, to these uh, communities, to the people in them. You know, it looks like a neutron bomb has hit, and then the Mongols have come through afterwards and got everyone hooked on fentanyl. Uh, you know, you, so when I read this, as stuff, well, as, well get, as low price toilet paper and soccer balls from Target and Walmart. Oh, great! Yeah, Walmart. good stuff. Right. Uh, it, you know, it really you can see it. It bothers me. Right. Um, so when I read this thing about you know this end of globalization and all this talk about you know um, solving our trade, solving our domestic problems by solving our trade issues, uh, I said I didn't see anything in there which. You know, sounded to me like anyone had any real ideas of how to do it. Let me read the you Trump, one. Let me read you one did. one paragraph. One paragraph says this: Whether Biden and and Democrats can harness the momentum to change U.S. trade policy, however, is uncertain. While united on Beijing's role in Ukraine, his economic team is still beset by squabbling over what to do with the tariffs on China imposed by the Trump administration and how much to restrict U.S. firms that operate there. They still must fill in the details of the proposed Indo-Pacific Pact, which remains more of a vague concept than an actual economic deal, and they will have to find ways to use the president's executive authority to encourage domestic manufacturing if Senate leaders can't find a way to, to placate centrist Senator Joe Manchin, 
whose opposition killed the Build Back Better bill last year. So you see some of the elements in there of this, you know, rebirth of American industry, domestic industry, right? And you see some of the pieces here, the, 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 a, a Pacific pact. What do you do with China relative to tariffs, and and how much are you going to limit business, knowing that that's going to be very unpopular with domestic businesses, and so you can see some of those elements here, right? And um, yet again, I, I how you know into the second year that we don't have a something to take and and begin to sell in the Pacific, you know that. Um, advances our uh, national interest is beyond me. I would lock them in the room and say, do not come out until you have something for me. If this is the pacing threat, if the great enabler of Russia in Ukraine is China, then we have to get this right. And and this is job one. I just, again. um, Yeah, lock them in that uh, red roof in in Erie, Pennsylvania. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, And and you're going to stay there until you get, but. The you know the the build back better scheme got was mentioned prominently in this, and you know ninety percent of the money in that you know has nothing to do with building anything. Uh, so you know I've been about as skeptical of something as any of this as I am of anything, uh, and the the idea is oh if we invest in these green energy companies, that's gonna you know revitalize Dundalk Maryland or. Uh, you know, I don't see the connection there. So it's a lot of um, theories by, I think, people who have never spent a night in a red roof inn in Youngstown, Ohio, and never will. Uh, so I say I don't. But so you know, say I'm pretty skeptical of it. Was that Trump administration that did fire some real salvos at the Chinese, and they were on the right track? Uh, but you remember how much opposition they faced, yeah. even from within the administration. I mean, mm-hmm. and then absolutely demonized, you know, oh, Trump's doing this and that. And, well, he was the first one to get China's attention. And now I think we're back to about where where we were. Uh, there's the, the one thing you'll hear mentioned in this article is a third way. It's some way that splits the difference between actually protecting our interests and selling completely out. Uh, but a third way is it's the way to look like you're doing something new and effective, and it it never turns out that way. Uh, so I don't know quite where we're, you know, well, I can kind of guess that nothing much is going to happen uh, from this that, that, that solves these issues that uh, they're talking about, you know, that you know, getting American manufacturing back uh, and there's no reason it can't come back, but I don't see anything here that's going to right. uh, do that or getting, you know, American business uh, to sort of grab it by the scruff of its neck and take it, get its snout out of that trough of Chinese money. Uh, that I don't know that how that's going to happen unless the, the, some, the U.S. government grows a spine and actually makes it impossible for people to invest in China. You know, you've... You know, we have some reviews that are done of Chinese investments in the United States. Uh, they're not enough, but there is something. Well, how about have something outward um, but it, uh, in, of investment into China? Screen that as well. Uh, but to do this, you've really got to play rough. And that's not something that's easy for administrations, any of them, to do because they just face so much opposition 
uh, when they try to do it. So I don't know that this is uh, is going to have much effect. And it, I would sort of uh, sort of associate that the sort of stasis that you've this uh, stalemate that you kind of got in the economic, the, the trade realm, I'd almost put that into the defense realm, that we maybe do a little better defense-wise. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's... Um, I don't know, not if you're paying attention to Representative Luria. She yeah. says you're going the... You don't have a strategy and you're going the wrong yeah. way. I stand corrected, yeah. That's you know, all, I, so, I, I'm again, yeah, not, to, not to add more pessimism yeah. to the discussion, yeah. but... Yeah, it's your fault because I'm generally a cheery guy. But, um, exactly. You know, when I, when I get, you know, I think of Youngstown, Ohio, or Uniontown, Pennsylvania, um, it does irk me. Uh, you know, the you know, one does just you, you notice when I, I've worked with a Wall Street firm, and they um, just in that world, they just have at at worst they have absolute contempt for the lower orders, for the people who weren't smart enough to go to Wharton or to get a job on Wall Street. And at best, they just don't care. I mean, they just don't give two hoots about these people. Uh, and, you know, in fact, I was just reading the, someone sent me, it was an interview with the um, a guy who had been uh, the chairman of a very prominent Wall Street firm's investment or operations in Asia in the 2010s. And he's considered an expert on China and Asia, although he doesn't know anything about either and really just got his job um, uh, because they just, like, felt they owed him one. Uh, and they wanted a guy who didn't know anything about, actually, uh, either Asia or the banking business. So the bankers knew they could do what they wanted with him. But anyway, in the interview, you know, it was all about China, his, about China, that the host, he says, well, I'm, um, they got cut off, their uh, telephone connection got cut off, the wireless. And the host, the guy who was doing the interview, and says, well, I don't know what happened there uh, because I'm in a good part of Virginia. It's, wi it's wineries and horse people, and it's not trailer parks and meth heads. <laughs> and, oh, you know, I, I you know, you, you can imagine. You know, you, you can He's imagine. He's talking about your homeland, Grant. No, it is the absolute contempt that you find. Oh, that. So you bristled more, more at the contempt and not at its being directed at the motherland? Oh, oh, no, not really. Not not at all, actually. I didn't think of that. Uh, but it was more the, uh, you know, this, you know, these losers, you know, these, these people who vote for Trump and hang out in Walmarts. Uh, you know, I do have a, an, an opinion when the these elite class, uh, you know, looks at, you know, these fellow citizens this way is no, no thought that the reason why you do have these social problems is because of what this MBA class, the financial class has done for the last 30 years. Um, but that got my attention when I, uh, when I read that. All right. Well, you so. need, you need to settle down then. <laughs> you need okay. to settle down. Okay. You wrote a piece, um, that's entitled Taiwan Shinzo Abe. Uh, Japan's former prime minister gets it partly right, partly in parentheses. Um, uh, can you explain that? You be, you've seemed to become a fan of uh, Mr. Abe. Is he prime minister, president? What does Japan have? He, yeah, he uh, prime minister. He was the prime minister till two ago, but they changed prime ministers. Um, 
All pretty the time. often, yeah. like the way we would change officer of the day practically. Um, the, uh, but he was the prime minister. And yeah, what I wrote about is uh, an something is an I wrote about an op ed, an article that um, Abe had had published in the Los Angeles Times. Uh, and this saying, is a, this is a while ago, though. It was a month ago or so, right. not too long. And right. he, um, you know, he says he said that America needs to end its policy of strategic ambiguity towards Taiwan, and to be very clear that it will fight and defend Taiwan. And you know, it was a very well written article, which means that Abe didn't write it, but they never do. Um, but it was it was well written, and it they got the logic right in a way that a Western American audience would understand it. And I read the article, and at first I was, you know, took offense at this, you know, that he's telling us Americans what to do. And then, you know, you, you listen, though, to what Abe has been saying uh, elsewhere in Japan um, over the last few months as well. And he's been very clear on the, uh, the need for the Japanese to actually start doing some things. Uh, particularly, he's talking about the importance of Taiwan. Uh, and he's mentioned the need for Japan to double its defense spending. And he says, if you don't, America, Japan will be a laughing stock. And he's using very strong language. And America, you know, American language, too. Yeah, it's yeah, it's uh, I'm not sure how it translates into Japanese, but it's it is, um, you know, he's been pretty clear about it. And, you know, so what the way I wrote this was, you know, once I calmed down a little bit was, um, you know, I said, well, this is really good. Um, but and it's good to hear that he's doing this you know, talk of saying these things to the, the Japanese audience. But there's he's never mentioning anything concrete that Japan needs to do. Uh, I mean, the concrete changes and actions that will improve Japan's war fighting capabilities. Uh, he's never mentioning that. So they're really it's almost like that Politico article talking about the end of globalization. You know, there's no real specifics of what, you know, is going to be done or needs done. And that's what I, I point out, that Abe's half right, uh, that it's good to hear him saying this. But at the same time, we're back to this problem of the Ameri the Japanese needing to do very specific things to improve their defense. And, you know, once again, it's the, the usual spend more money, treat the uh, Japanese servicemen and women, treat them better. Uh, attract more recruits, learn how to do joint operations and become a better uh, ally to the United States, better able to operate with the Americans. Uh, sort of like the, the two, the Japanese and the American Navy already can. They can do a pretty good job at that. Uh, but that's what I point out. And I say, so Japan's... Uh, okay, so you've been watching this about longer than anybody else has, um, or as long as anybody else has, as far as I can tell. Do, do you see indications that anything's moving in that direction that they are going to happen. No, um, but they are, you know, there's on the plus side, and I do mention this is that um, the Japanese are trying to do more with what they have. You're seeing the, say the Japanese military operating in more places and they're doing some good training with the Americans that actually is kind of like, training for war fighting so that with what they have they're uh they are doing some good things but too often you get the the japanese will say oh we're maxed out you know we don't have the money 
you know, we don't have the people, excuses, excuses, excuses. So I don't see that happening. And what I think is required is some of the right, and I say this, is some of the right Americans to sit down with the right Japanese and saying, this is what you have to do uh, to build out the your military, uh, both sort of structure-wise, but also capability-wise. And this is the hardware you're going to need. Uh, and this is you know, how we're going to work together to get it done. And I think unless that happens, that it'll never happen, or not until it's too late. Uh, and that's what I, I would suggest, because there are Japanese, particularly officers active and retired and a few civilians who really do know what needs done and want to do it. But getting the Americans to take the lead and say, look, here's what you got to do, that would be useful uh, because it's um, in a Japanese kind of way. Uh, there is often a preference for having uh, somebody else tell you what you need to do so you can blame it on them and you don't have to. Uh, take responsibility for it. And it's sort of a cultural thing. But it'd be nice if the Americans would speak up. Um, just as a funny story that this was 25 years ago, at least, uh, the Americans were negotiating with the Japanese for the Japanese to open up their port management industry so American port management companies could get involved. And the Japanese negotiators actually Ask the Japan, ask the American negotiators to please really, really be tough on us. Uh, you know, I mean, just bully us. <laughs> and uh, and the reason why was because when partly they wanted to um, be able to say it was the Americans' fault that they had to agree to this because they were so mean. But also, was the Japanese negotiators didn't want the yakuza to kill them because <laughs> the Japanese ports were. Um, uh, somewhat influenced by organized crime. So these guys wanted to be able to say somewhat look, 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 somewhat look. influenced by organized yeah. crime. Yeah, it was like you know like oh, like owned but, uh, yeah, kind of. <laughs> they, uh, so they wanted to be able to blame it on the white man. Uh, which oh, I man. thought was pretty funny. It was funny, but it also it told you something um, in in about how one you one one way to operate sometimes uh, with the Japanese, and I think with fixing the um, uh, the Japanese militaries, that that I think it would be nice to say to have the right Americans sit down with them, and that requires I say the right ones. It requires some a couple of a few big picture guys, uh, but also you want these nuts and bolts kind of people, officers that can tell you you need this many ships force this size able to do these things i see the nuts and bolts guys uh and guys who can also get stuff done so it's that mix you don't need you know a bunch of three and four stars to get into a room and complement each other that's not uh, very useful um, but you need a, a different uh, type of person to be sitting in that room on both sides do you think that the what the events that we're all watching uh in eastern europe are enough to um, create the momentum where that gets done because I, you know, if, if they can look at this and and be cavalier, you know, and minimalists about their own defense, then I don't really know what, um, you know, God help them, God help us all. Yeah, and I think it does, you know, it. Um, but it's like catching a wave that, you know, that you, you've got you've only got a window to to move with it. But it does require the Americans to, uh, 
want it to happen and do what's necessary to sort of raise the, uh, to tell the Japanese what they need to do. But Americans have to take the lead uh, on this. So the, the window's open and, or the, the wave is there if we want to catch it, but it won't last forever uh, to my way of thinking. But, but it's certainly a pretty big wave, uh, you know, the, the effect that it's had on the Japanese. And I've never seen anything like this. Uh, in terms of how it has has rattled them, but once again, turning the the sort of rattledness into concrete improvements, uh, that's the the hard part, and that's where some specific attention is needed. All right, Grant. First of all, always uh, a pleasure to uh, to talk to you, and I appreciate you watching that video and checking the it, article it, out. Yeah, um, it really is a good good video. That's uh, highly recommended. Got it. All right, sir. Thank you very much. Sure. Mm -hmm. I'll talk to you later. There you have it. That'll do it on a Wednesday morning. I'll be back on Friday with the Mensa Brothers. So don't miss that. Thanks for listening. If I can help somebody that you know, uh, don't hesitate. All the contact information comes to me right here at the corporate headquarters of All Marine Radio. So, on that note, have a great Wednesday. I'm Mike McNamara, this is All Marine Radio. I'm out. <laughs>